So, with that, we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul's final words before he gets to his wish list of just asking Timothy to do some practical things for him as he comes to see him. But he gets to this point where he climaxes the letter with his epitaph. His, these are his final words. We've said several times that 2 Timothy is the final words of, Jesus, of Paul. And here's the final words of his final words. Um, and it is, um, they're powerful words. And I'm sure you've heard them so much. You know, sometimes I, I hear some parts of Scripture so much I, I stop hearing those words. And I have to remind myself to listen to, to what they say and, and hear them as if I'm listening to them for the first time. But look, look what he's saying in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 through, chapter 4, 6 through 8. It is per, personal, first person. I am already, already uh, being poured out. So he's in the process of dying, it sounds. Uh, probably just means he's, he is in the prison. And again, we've talked about what imprisonment in the first century meant. You know, the Romans never had been told they needed to take care of prisoners. When they threw you in a hole to wait on your trial, they didn't even feed you. If your friends didn't bring you food, you didn't eat. So imprisonment was sort of a torture. So that's why just being in prison makes him say, I'm already being poured out. Um, notice the image he uses here, being poured out as a drink offering. Well, that goes back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, you know, you had all these offerings that were offered on the altar there in the temple in Jerusalem. Grain offering, fruit offering. Well, you had a drink offering where you'd pour wine out on the altar. Uh, and it's interesting, that's how Paul is seeing his death right here, as an offering to God, as his final offering of himself to God. That's the way he sees his death. Uh, he's being poured out. Some of you know that every morning, and I've done this for years, uh, you would think I'd have all of his stuff memorized by now, but I don't. Every morning I read Oswald Chambers. I read Oswald Chambers, um, um, My Utmost for His Highest. I have a portrait of Oswald Chambers in my study. I have lots of stuff in my study that motivate me, portraits, paintings, um, artifacts, but I have a portrait of Oswald Chambers in my study. Oswald Chambers, if you're not familiar with Oswald Chambers, uh, you may have heard the title of that devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, because it's still in print. It's one of the most popular devotionals, has been for a little over 100 years, almost 100 years now. Oswald Chambers was a uh, Scottish uh, Bible teacher. Um, he died in 1917. He died in 1917 in Egypt because he was um, um, in the First World War. Uh, serving the United Kingdom in the First World War. He was in Egypt. Um, he was actually working as chaplain in the military, uh, and he was uh, there with the soldiers in Egypt. Um, appendicitis took him out. That happened in 1917. He died rather suddenly. He's buried in Egypt. Tammy keeps wanting to go to Egypt. I want to go to Egypt. Not really, but a little bit. Um, <laughs> About the only reason I really want to go to Egypt, I'd love to see Oswald Chambers' grave in Egypt. Uh, and the pyramids, I guess, and all that other stuff. But I'd love to see Oswald Chambers' grave. Um, 
he, he, he was a prolific Bible teacher, which is one of the reasons he's one of my mentors, has been long dead. Uh, he was a prolific Bible teacher um, in Scotland, England, and then died in Egypt. Um, he never really wrote much, but his wife wrote a bunch. She was a stenographer. Remember what those were? She was a stenographer, and she wrote down his stuff that he said. And, um, and it probably helped because she probably needed income after he died, but she's the one that produced my utmost for his highest, a little daily devotional. And I use it. I read through it every year annually. Um, I'll never forget uh, going to see Van York in his final days uh, there at Pennyburn. And... Um, there by his bedside was one, one of another copy, another almost worn out copy of my utmost for his highest, Boswell Chambers. And I knew Van and I were kindred spirits. But um, yeah, I read through it annually. Uh, I actually change edition. I change, well, you can get an updated edition language-wise. And um, this probably doesn't surprise you. I like the original language. I don't trust people who update other people's language. I just, just tell me what Oswald said. Anyway, but I do change my book periodically so that I, I hope, I hope um, this may be a little narcissistic, I hope some of my children, grandchildren, will, will enjoy having copies of my Oswald Chambers after I'm gone because I mark it, I'm, I write in it. Um, so that's why I like to have these used copies of Oswald Chambers. Uh, my kids may say, well, why did he have to keep getting new copies to mark up? Well, I'm going to tell them so y'all can have copies. But one of the things Oswald Chambers says multiple times, and this is why I remember it, one of the things Oswald Chambers says multiple times in his daily devotions is he's thinking about the communion service. He's thinking about how the communion service reminds us of the life of Jesus. And here you see should remind us of the life of Paul. And in Oswald Chambers' devotional, he'll say frequently, he'll make a reference to the fact that he wants to be, he, Oswald Chambers, wants to be broken bread and poured out wine for the sake of this world. You know, that's part of why we're left here. Not just to be narcissists, you know, grab all the gusto we can. We're left here in this world to become broken bread, poured out wine. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of this world. And Paul saw his life that way. And that's why he saw his whole life as being a pouring out of his life for the sake of others, for the sake of Christ. And uh, here that he's about to die, he, he has his image of the, of, the, of the drink offering being poured on the, on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem as an offering to God. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering... And the time, watch this, and the time of my departure has come. That word departure has always been one of the most comforting words for me in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's a nautical term. It was a very common word in the Greek. It was a nautical term used among the Navy and the sailors of the day. And it means to depart, literally means to leave this shore for another one. You notice Paul didn't say my end's coming. You know, he didn't say um, life's finishing. and he, he refers to death as his departure. He's leaving this shore for another one. So I always think of death that way. Death's not a period. It's simply a comma. So I know for the world, 
around us. They see death as just a tragedy. Now, again, I know that death is tragic. You know, I've lost loved ones. It's very, very painful. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that I, I don't grieve. I'm, I'm quoting Paul here. I don't grieve as those who have no hope. I, I don't know how the world around us goes through life without a faith. Because um, life is hard. And we all grieve. You cut as we bleed. But because of my faith, I bleed and grieve differently. I still grieve, but I bleed and grieve differently. Um, you know, some of you know, my earliest, some of my earliest um, teachers were Benedictine monks in the Roman Catholic tradition. They go, and their, their tradition dates back to the 6th century. And in the Benedictine tradition, they, um, they frequently will pray. Um, and um, usually when I take people with me to the, my periodic vision, visits to the monastery, it usually shocks them when they hear this. Uh, they, they frequently will pray in their liturgy of the hours, their prayers for the day. They will pray for, and this is their language, a good death. Now, a good death does not mean a painless death. Because, I mean, they've been going at this since the 6th century. Painless death has kind of been a very modern thing. My wife, again, who's a hospice nurse, um, particularly if you know her well and, or if you're related to her or married to her, and you, and you say something like, I hope I die quietly in my sleep, she will say to you, probably not. <laughs> Very few people go that way. Uh, we, we, we usually leave this world with a season of pain and suffering. And so the Benedictine monks who trained me, when they talked about a good death, they didn't mean a painless death, because throughout history that's not been much of an option. But a good death means to do what Paul's saying here. He's dying in the faith. He's dying in grace. He's dying with confidence. He's dying knowing that his life and his death even are an offering to God. Um, so you can pray for a good death, even daily. You can pray for a good death. Um, Paul's, you know, being very honest with Timothy here. Um, he, he's, 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 he's viewing, he's telling you how he's viewing his death. One of the things that I do in, in my morning prayer time, on, one of my regular things I do in my morning prayer time, because my wife is a hospice nurse, administrator, but she, she does some administration and she still, does, she still gets to do... Um, the good stuff. She still gets to take care of patients occasionally. And um, uh, so I pray each morning for the people for whom my wife and her organization will care for, that they will have a good death. Good death. Um, you know, I, sometimes that can be a, a great blessing to the family. You know, I used to say I wanted to die suddenly, and I got over that a long time ago. I want about two weeks' notice because <laughs> I've got some things I want to say to my family. People listen at that point. I would love to say some things to my family during that. Like, you know, get those copies of Oswald Chambers and treasure them. You know, uh, make sure they know where my books are that are autographed by famous authors to make sure that Billy Graham's signature's on one of my diplomas. There's a whole lot of things I want to say to people on my way out of here. That's why I don't want a sudden death. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that says, Good Lord, deliver me from a sudden death. Because, um, you know, it'd be great if we were always ready to go. 
but we usually aren't always ready to go. Sometimes it's good to have a little forewarning. We should always know that, but sometimes we live with a little bit of a delusion that we're going to live forever or denial we're going to live forever. Um, but, you know, but sometimes we need to re- be reminded those words may be your last words. I, I just watched a little YouTube video recently. Um, you can go Google it. Deaths of U.S. presidents and their last words. You can tell the ones who knew it was happening and the ones who didn't know it was happening. I mean, the ones who didn't know it was happening, their words are not as quite, quite as profound. <laughs> you know what John F. Kennedy's last words were? Something like, they make no sense to you know the context, something like, um, you're, you're sure right about that. But it's because Nellie Connolly had just said to him, see, see, Mr. President, how much Texas loves you. So he just responded to something like, well, you sure are right about that. Um, Melissa Grant said, I think something like, I want some water. That's okay, too. But some of them really said some pretty profound things. So, um, yeah, you're all, everything you say may be your last words. So you need to kind of pay attention to that. Anyway, that's been a long tangent. But, um, you know, death for us is, we're, 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 the Christian faith is very earthy and very realistic. We know it's coming. Teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. Well, Paul obviously is sitting in a prison. He knows what's coming, so he says this to, he says that his time of departure, he's going to leave this shore for another one. Um, beautiful image there. That's verse 6. Look at verse 7. Uh, Paul uses almost all of these analogies or metaphors in other places. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. So he's talking soldier, athlete, and I guess you could say a steward. I've kept the faith. I've kept what's been entrusted to me. I've taken care of what's been entrusted to me. A trustee or steward. I have fought the good fight. You know, some of you heard me say that every morning I say two things to myself as I get out of bed before I ever get to my um, prayer spot. I say, I rise to fight another day, and I remind myself of my personal mission statement, which is to help others find fullness of life in Jesus Christ. But before I ever say my personal mission statement to myself, I rise to fight another day. I know, you know, it's not politically correct now to use any militaristic language. You know, we can't even play, tell our children to play soldiers, I guess, anymore. But anyway, uh, Paul loved military language. Put on the full armor of God. I fight the good fight. You know, part of the spiritual life is we are in a spiritual war. You know, and if you're in a spiritual war, but you're not in battle, you, it's not, probably going to end well for you. So since you're in a spiritual war, you better know how to be in battle. Um, the Bible teaches you how to be victorious in, in this life that can be um, f- filled with uh, spiritual and other conflict. Anyway, it says, I have fought the good fight. There's some things worth fighting over, by the way. Um, I'm reading a book right now for a lot of different reasons. Um, Tammy, he, she's seen me read it twice before, and I think she worries when I read it because it kind of makes me just a little bit combative. Um, 
is Jim Webb, who is a U.S. senator from Virginia, wrote a wonderful book on the history of the Scott-Irish people that settled Appalachia. That's my people. That's my tribe. And uh, it's an amazing book, and he was a great author. He was a lawyer, politician, military person. But he wrote this book in 2007 because that's his heritage, too. I keep trying to get Tammy to read it so she'll understand me better. Um, but it's all about Scott-Irish heritage. Now, again, please, 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 Scott-Irish is not a hybrid. North Carolina was settled almost first and foremost by the Scott-Irish. That doesn't mean we're hybrid. We're not a mutt between Scotland and Ireland. We were those Scottish Protestants. This tells you about the book. I'm going to give you the title of the book in a minute. We were those Scottish Protestants that in the late 16th century, early 17th century, really the late 16th century, um, King James, or the early 16th century through the 16th century, 17th century, 1600s, King James, um, who was King James of Scotland before he became King James of England, uh, he, he, he took some of those Scottish Protestants, very Protestants in Scotland, and settled them in Northern Ireland. Well, we stayed there long enough to really mess things up. We stayed there for about 100 years, 150 years, and a whole lot of the Scott-Irish, uh, those, they, they're called Ulster Scots over there. Orangemen. Orangemen. Yep. Orange, green, if you don't know that. Yeah. It's not pleasant. We, we're the cause of the troubles in Northern Ireland, as they call them. Um, we're the cause of the troubles. We're the Protestants that were settled from Scotland into Northern Ireland. Uh, then we did come to the United States. And, um, you know, that whole Revolutionary War thing was sort of our doing because we never liked the English. We've never liked the English. So we came and uh, we, we kind of helped create the Revolutionary War. So anyway, when um, Jim Webb wrote his wonderful book, very interesting quick read, fun read, on the history of the Scott-Irish. It's a social history of the Scott-Irish. And, and it talks about our history, our personalities, our makeup, our values. It generalizes. You know what the title of the book is? This is why Tammy doesn't want me reading it. Not, but I wish she'd read it. The title of the book is Born Fighting. <laughs> yeah, that's been our history. You know, since they took us out. Well, in Scotland, we were Braveheart. Yeah, fighting the English. Then, you know, they put us in Ireland, and guess what we did there? We came to America, guess what we did here? And, you know, that's why uh, he has a quotation in that book about the, um, the mountain people, my ancestors, my family, uh, the Scott-Irish people who settled the mountains in western North Carolina. He said, um, if you make a Yankee mad, they sue you. If you make a mountain Scott-Irish person mad, they kill you. <laughs> That's my family up in the mountains. Um, anyway, yeah, rather independent, but we, we, um, we know there's some things worth fighting for. Yeah, we know there's some things worth fighting for. Uh, anyway, I fight the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Again, that's still your athletic imagery. 
you'd get that wreath, that crown, that wreath crown if you won the athletic race in Corinth and won those Olympic festivals like in Corinth or Delphi or Athens. If you, if you won the, the athletic event, you'd get sort of a wreath or a crown. He says if you, if you fight the good fight and you finish the race and you keep the faith, you're going to get a crown of righteousness. Now, that does not mean good person who knows the Bible, good, yeah, it does not mean that um, you're going to get a crown because you've been such a righteous person. We all know about grace that's amazing, that saves wretches like us. What that means is, the gift, one of the gifts you're going to get in heaven is the crown of righteousness, the crown that bestows righteousness, the righteousness giving crown. You know, there's so much that's going to be great about heaven, the presence of God, um, the presence of our loved ones that are there. Um, but another great thing for us Christians is uh, we sang it in worship here Sunday. Charles Wesley, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. We sang love divine or love's excelling. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. We'll be that on the other side. You know, part of what makes heaven heaven is we'll be freed from sin. We'll be freed from brokenness. We'll be filled with the righteousness of God. We'll be perfected, pure and spotless, let us be. Um, finish then thy new creation. So, you know, we're going to get that crown of righteousness when we'll be made perfectly righteous uh, on the other side. So there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, that's the one before whom we have to appear, will award to me on that day. He'll give it to us. We don't earn it. He'll give it to us. We'll award to me on that day. On that day. That's my death day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. And again, his appearing is both our death day. We have what we call theologically uh, both realized eschatology and future eschatology. Yeah, you're going to see Jesus when you die. And we all are going to see Jesus in this world when he returns. Realize eschatology is you're, you're going to be judged and you're going to see him at your death. But there will be a point in history uh, when in, in the future when uh, everyone will see Jesus, when he will return in this world to rule and to reign. So that's why we Christians talk about um, realized eschatology. I mean, we even are, we can experience Jesus now. We can feel Jesus now. We can see Jesus and others now. At death, we will really see Jesus. And then when he returns, we will really, really see Jesus in this world. Um, so he, Paul kind of blends those together here, you know, about his death and to all who love his appearing. You know, one thing that I, I'm very mindful of when I read Paul, this is one of the reasons, there's so many reasons I like Paul. He's one of my best friends. If you read the writings of Paul, you realize Paul understood himself so well that he knew that on any day, at any moment, he could hinder the gospel. He could harm the gospel. He could hurt his witness. He could get in the way of other people coming to know Jesus Christ. So for him, faithfulness was doing the best he could through the power of the Spirit to be faithful to that sharing of the gospel and the witness. I mean, we're not going to do it perfectly. 
You know, we don't finish the new creation in this world. Finish the new creation, pure and spotless let us be. That day's coming. But uh, we can do the best we can do by grace through the work of the Spirit um, to be the best witnesses, best disciples, best Christ followers that we can. And for Paul, and here he's talking about dying in the faith, dying faithfully, dying a good death, uh, holding on to the end, dying with confidence in Christ. Um, that's, that's, that's what he means by faithfulness. That's what he means by faithfulness. So, uh, yeah, an amazing text. An amazing text. Um, part of what I want, that's why I need two weeks with my family before the end. I got a lot of requests about, about the end. But, by the way, a real practical piece of advice. My wife knows I got lots of ideas about the end, my funeral, what happens after my funeral. But my wife also knows that the caveat over everything I wish is that she does what she needs to do at that point in her life. I mean, if, I mean it's going it, to be a shebang when I die. <laughs> now, I have said to my family, the big public stuff, but there's also going to be the private stuff for my family, is my wish. Now, my wife is a pure extrovert. She may not want anything private. She may want the whole world and everything she does, and that's why I want her to do what she wants to do at that point. I don't... I try to encourage other people. Don't, don't tell your family stuff to do at your death. That will be hard for them to do. You know, I've got some peculiar requests for my death. In some way. Not peculiar, just unique. I'm not going to say what they are. You have to stay tuned. <laughs> and, you know, but my wife has the, has the benefit to not do any of them. Because I want her to do what she needs to do at that point. But she's strong-willed. And she doesn't really care a lot about what other people, yeah, she, she, will, she, she will not bend to anybody's convention or expectation. So she'll probably do what I've asked, some of the stuff I've asked, and have a good time doing it. She actually told me one time she's going to um, embalm me and, like, drive me around to all my churches and <laughs> have final worship. You know, anyway, that was not part of my request. But, um, you know, when, when you're facing death, when you're heading toward death, and then at the time of your death and after your death, people are in a particularly listening mode at that point. That's why, by the way, historically we have created last wills and we don't do much, much of the testifying anymore. We just create those things to distribute property now. My, my family's going to have to sit through more than just a distribution of property. When they, when they hear my reading of my last will and testament, there'll be some testifying in my testament. Um, some of my kids need to hear it worse than others. But there'll be some testifying in my testament, and my testament's left. Yeah, that's where we get that last will and testament. Say something to your people. As you're heading that way throughout all of life, but particularly at that point, say something to your people. Yeah, don't let them just gather to hear who gets what of your property. Let them sit through. I think I may videotape myself talking to them. Um, I've toyed with, you know, you know, I'm not a control freak, but I, part of me has actually toyed with the idea of like um, <clears throat> recording my sermon, but I'm not sure anybody else can do it the way I want them to do it. 
at my funeral. I had a person in my second church who sang at his funeral. He made a recording and of a particular song, and it was part of this funeral service. It was a powerful moment. He did the he did the old Southern gospel. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one that has been saved by his grace. Yeah, he, he wanted yeah, he had our attention at his funeral when we heard what he wanted to sing to us. Uh, anyway. This is a great text. That's probably more than enough on this text. Um, so next week we will get into that really interesting um, logistical ho- housekeeping matters where Paul gives where Paul gives Timothy a to do list.